The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Chapter 13. Today we're going to begin at verse 42 and we will finish out the chapter. Every good sermon is designed to have at least two parts, as we mentioned last week. There is always a call, and there should always be a response. The preacher must declare the glory of God. They must declare the magnificence of God's greatness and his attributes as they are on display in the word. But in order for that to go beyond information and into the realm of transformation, the sermon has to set forth a challenge, a call for the individual to see how the Bible requires them to change. So there must be a call, and that will always precipitate a response. You must decide what you are going to do with the things that you hear. So let's rewind for a moment and remember where we finished off last Sunday. Paul has just preached a very powerful sermon at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. The sermon was not only radically God-centered, it was also revealing to them how Jesus is at the center of everything that was going on in the Old Testament. Every moment in the history of Israel was pointing forward to this conclusion, this exclamation point in history, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Everything was about him. Paul was declaring that There is now a way of peace, and there is a way to be right with God. And he explained to them that there were limitations on the law of Moses. There were things that it could never do, and it was lacking in its ability to save. But now there is genuine redemption that is available through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In particular, Paul argued that the resurrection of Jesus was the proof that Jesus fulfilled all that God set forth to do in the Psalms and the Prophets. God personally vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, and in doing so, God also made it clear that Jesus truly is the one and only way to heaven. There is no other way. And at the end of that sermon, Paul made a clear line in the sand that this is good news being offered to them as a gift. If they will believe, they will be saved. So last week we saw the call, and now today, let's see how the people responded. Beginning in verse 42, and following. Please follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
But the Jews incited the devout, uh, the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook the, uh, the dust off of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. O oh God in heaven, today we approach your word, and I ask that you would warm our hearts and that you would melt away any apathy or lethargy that we have towards your word. God, I ask that you would cause our minds to engage and that you would cause our hearts to rejoice and that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church by your word. In particular, Lord, I ask that the sensitive nature of the doctrine in this sermon would be cause for unity and would be cause for deeper searching of the Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would please cause this sermon to bring more clarity, not more confusion. Help us to delight in your sovereignty and to be in awe of your love. Lord, we need you and we need you to help us today to understand and to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. History is all about what happened in the past. Never more obvious words were spoken. History books can tell you what happened in the past. History books can even attempt to assign motives to people that lived hundreds of years or if, if not thousands of years ago. And it can attempt to explain why these things happened according to those people's desires. However, the discipline of history itself is quite limited. We as Bible readers know that God is working out a plan throughout redemptive history. We know that he is doing something specific that he has set forth from the very beginning. Every war that has ever been fought on any continent on this planet, every revolution that has ever been attempted, every election that has ever taken place are all the outworkings of God's perfect plan. None of those things happen apart from his will, nor could any scheme of man thwart his intentions or desires. But even the greatest historians are in the dark concerning why God does what he does. They are in the dark concerning how God operates in human history. But by God's grace and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke is not in the dark. And Dr. Luke tells us what happened, but also why it happened according to God himself. And for the sake of understanding this text, that is how we're going to divide up the sermon this morning. We're going to spend some time seeking to get our minds around what just happened, and then we're going to drill down into the divine underpinnings of these events by seeking to understand why they happened this way. So let's just take a slow stroll through this text one more time, and we're going to stop as we go, and we're going to take in some of these details. Let's begin again at verse 42. It says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Now, remember who these people are. These are the Jewish people in the synagogue. These are the people who are consistently hearing the Old Testament read to them every Saturday. They have probably done this every Sabbath their entire lives, and now they are hearing something new. And this is a very rare occurrence. This is one of the most friendly receptions that Paul ever received after preaching at a synagogue. This is new. This is interesting to those people, and it struck a chord in their heart, and they just want to know more. So they beg them, please don't leave town. Please don't go anywhere. We want to hear more about this. I do find it interesting that not all of them pursued uh, conversations with Paul 
and Barnabas throughout the week. Um, just as a side note, if you want to know more, you don't have to wait until next Sunday to hear more. Let's talk about these things throughout the week. But continue on in verse 43. Some of them did that. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So, so far, everything is going swimmingly. It seems like there's a good number of Jews and there's a good number of proselytes who stuck with Paul throughout the the week in order to listen to him preach. That's what it means when it says they followed him. It means that they literally went where he went and they would talk to him throughout the day. It doesn't necessarily mean that they believed him about everything because we're going to see that that is not the case, but it does mean that they went where they went in order to continue on in learning. And their response was not only pleasant, but it was complimentary to them. And Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue on in the grace of the Lord. Now, I have a pastor friend who once told me that nobody in his church had complimented him in any way on his sermons for at least the last several years. Now, I have to say, I am really, really thankful that that's not the case at this church. There are many people in the church who are often very gracious and speak kindly to me about the sermons that I prepare and that I preach. And you do more than just offer passing kind regards. You actually engage with me sometimes and ask me questions or want to talk about how a particular part of the sermon was meaningful to you or helpful. And that is wonderful. But I also want you to know that just because you liked a sermon or just because a sermon had some kind of temporary effect, it does not mean that you were ultimately changed by it. Consider the difference a week made in the lives of these people in this synagogue. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The people that had been so excited by the sermon one week prior were now being abusive to Paul the next. Let me ask, what changed? What's the difference here? What what made the difference in their actions towards Paul? Well, The previous week, the only people that were in the room were ethnic Jews and those that were called God-fearers. These were people that were not ethnically Jewish, but they subscribed to Jewish structure of worship, and they, they believed in the God of the Old Testament, and they were probably on their way to becoming proselytes or Gentiles who become Jewish. So it's unlikely here that they were used to having any kind of of person in their midst that are outside of those two categories. Now it says that the whole city gathered to hear Paul preach. Now this does not mean every person without exception. It does mean that there was a large percentage of the population that were present and this massive crowd had gathered to listen. And verse 45 tells us that this made the Jews incredibly jealous. But why? Why are they jealous? What on earth would cause them to be jealous in this situation? Isn't this cause for rejoicing? If we had the entire town of Massapequa pulling up and driving in and trying to find parking in this neighborhood and standing outside of our building, would that not be cause for rejoicing? Of course it would. But let me offer you three likely causes of their jealousy that were underlying this verse. First of all, the teachers of the synagogue probably viewed Paul as an interesting speaker as kind of a a traveling communicator, an evangelist who will pop in and then go and ultimately have no effect on their authority over their congregation. But then when this entire crowd showed up, it revealed to them that Paul was way more effective than they were at reaching out to the city. And 
now they are offended that they themselves are being shown up by this small, short Jewish man with a big voice. A.T. Robertson explains it like this. It says, Envy and jealousy arise between people of the same calling. Doctors towards doctors, lawyers towards lawyers, preachers towards preachers. So these rabbis boiled with jealousy when they saw that the crowds gathered to hear Paul and Barnabas, not them. Secondly, the Gentiles would have been considered lowly and unclean. I think we know this from our understanding of the Bible. But not only were these people not Jewish, and not only were they Gentiles, many of them were probably employed in jobs that the Jewish people detested, and for good reason. Pisidian Antioch was the most significant and important city in Asia Minor because it was right at the center of the major trade routes between Europe and the Middle East. And as such, it was filled with travelers all year round. This was a tourist destination to some extent. The three largest industries in the city were the massive outdoor amphitheater was one of them. It was the largest theater known in the world at that time. It was an outdoor amphitheater that allowed 12,000 people to come and to observe plays. Now, we have a lot of stadiums today that are not 12,000, that can't hold 12,000 people. The fact that they were able to build this and everyone could hear because of the design was phenomenal. It was fascinating. It was built into the side of a hill where everything just echoed. And I don't know anything about this kind of stuff, but the acoustics were perfect, supposedly. So all of this stuff was very substantial. But as you know, the entertainment industry always carries with it a penchant for pushing the boundaries of morality. And that was definitely the case with this kind of theater. Secondly, Pisidian Antioch was famous for its Roman baths that were built around the natural waterfall that flowed into the city. And these baths brought with them a culture of nudity and of sexuality that stood in stark contrast to the ways of the Lord that are expressed in the Bible. And many of the people of the city were employed in this place. Third was the what's called the Augustinium Bastinian, or the Sanctuary of the Imperial cult, as some people now call it. What this was, was a temple specifically built for the worship of Caesar Augustus. He's dead at this point, but people still worshiped him as a god in this city. And it was one of the largest temples in the entire region. People would come from all over the countryside to come and worship this dead emperor. And you know who made the money from that? The people in the town who worked in the employ of this massive building. Not to mention all the bartenders and innkeepers and cult prostitutes and tax collectors that were probably also present at the synagogue that day. Now, consider these Jews. They look out and they see all of these people that they can't stand. All of these people that they would literally go get a priest to cleanse them if they touched those people. They do not want to be around them. They would never invite this kind of person into their home. They want a great distance from them because they bring with them defilement. Consider the words of the pastor's outline study Bible. It says, This place was filling up with people who were different. They were thought to be unclean and dirty. They were sinful and unjust and derelict. They were outsiders to the regular congregation. These are the kind of people who usually did not attend and showed no interest in attending, and therefore they did not support the permanent priests or their ministry. These people did not want, the Jewish people did not want these people with them. They did not want to be near them. And so as they look out, there's a sense of jealousy. This is ours, not theirs. And thirdly, the Jews were probably outnumbered by a substantial margin. Consider that this probably caused them to feel some jealousy over their culture. 
well, if this is who is coming in, we're going to be outnumbered, and all of a sudden, all of our culture, all of the things that we like, they're going to go away. We want to hold fast to those traditions. The message that could have brought them life was now being rejected, not because they rejected the content outright, but because they couldn't lay down their own pride. And this is a good reminder to us that it's not enough to feel convicted when you hear a sermon. It's not enough to be encouraged and filled with a bubbly feeling when you hear a sermon. It's not enough to just feel guilty and walk away and say, man, pastor, that really hit right where it needed to. It was like you were preaching right to me and then walk out and nothing changes. Real change requires repentance, and true repentance is not a short-lived emotion. Rather, it is an ongoing commitment to run away from what is evil and to walk in the light in the face of God. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning now to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I just want to say a couple quick things about this. First of all, this is the pattern that is set forth in the scripture that the apostles always took the gospel first to the Jewish population, and then they delivered the message to the Gentiles. Paul writes, for example, in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We see this pattern in Paul's ministry and every other apostle in the New Testament, But I also want you to understand here that this command to take the light of the Gentiles is an Old Testament command. The people of Israel were told to do this hundreds of years before, and they had radically failed in proclaiming the goodness of God to the entire world. They're supposed to take salvation to the ends of the very earth. Not only did they not do that, they themselves have now rejected the message of salvation. And so Paul is saying, We're not going to bring this message to you. We are now going to turn and communicate it to the Gentiles. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, how did they respond? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. The response that we see here is designed to be in direct contrast to the response of the Jews in the city. He writes it in such a way that you should see this is very different than the way that the Jews responded. They first heard and rejoiced, but then when, it, when they didn't like what was happening, they rejected. But here, these people begin by rejoicing, and their response is to continue to proclaim the word. They honor the word of the Lord, and then they spread the word of the Lord to the whole region. They were not just interested in the gospel like a passing fad or just as some tickling of their ears. It was not just a mental exercise when they had nothing better to do on the weekend. Christ became their life. And so there was radical transformation. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. The Jewish leaders here treated Paul and Barnabas just like they treated Christ in Jerusalem. They incited violent persecution against them. They got all the influencers in their society, all of the stars and all of the politician and all of the wealthy people, and they got them to stand up and vocally express opposition to the gospel so that there might even be a physical violent action by the people of the city. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound at all familiar? The influencers in our culture are not too far from this. They are almost all automatically standing in outright opposition to the things of the Lord. And Antioch became so severe that Paul and Barnabas were required to move on to the next city. They go to Iconium. Verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet 
against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas were done for now in Pisidian Antioch. And so they symbolically here disowned the people of that city by shaking the dust off their feet so as not to take anything from the city with them. It was a way of saying, no more. God has separated us from you. We are leaving. We're moving on and you are not coming with us. But the gospel had a clear and very lasting impact on those people. And the persecution of the Jews had the exact opposite of its intended effect. They wanted to quash this. They wanted to to squelch it and destroy it. But instead of shutting the people up and causing them to be quiet, those who were saved were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The persecution doesn't stop joy. The Holy Spirit brought that to them and they could not lose it. As we will see throughout the course of the New Testament, the Judaizers would cause a great deal of trouble for this new church. But by the grace of God, the faith that they have would be founded in the truth and they would not be swayed. So what happened here? God saved some of the people in Pisidian Antioch, but not all of the people were saved. In fact, it seems that most of, if not all of the Jews, rejected the gospel in this city. So Luke gives us the facts. He tells us the history. But you may have noticed a very important line that I failed to comment upon earlier. We will spend the rest of our time this morning zooming in here just on verse 48. Look at that verse again. And if you're comfortable writing in your Bible, I encourage you to underline this one or highlight it or mark it in some way that you know every time you come to this passage that this is a substantial and significant thing to consider. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We have experienced something very strange happening recently with our kids' dentist. The dentist's office will call us every once in a while, usually around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they will say to us, hey, um, ASAP has a cleaning tomorrow at 10 a.m. And we'll talk about it, and we're like, wait a minute, we, we didn't schedule an appointment. Why in the world are you, are you saying this? Oh, yeah, you, you've had this appointment. It's been on the calendar for months. Uh, we don't have any record of that. Okay, well, we can't make it tomorrow. And it's strange because these are appointments we know that we didn't make, nor did we have any knowledge of them. And uh, this kind of came to a head this week because the dentist called my phone and they said that there was an appointment for me the following morning. And I asked the woman, "Uh, can I just be clear here, who made this appointment? And she said, well, of course you made the appointment. And I said, well, I can assure you that I have never made an appointment with you. I have never been to your office. I have never spoken to anyone in your office. I have a different dentist altogether. There is no way that I would make an appointment with you. And uh, I know that this is not something that has ever been on my calendar. And so after talking about this for a little bit, she finally admitted that their office does this, where they will occasionally just randomly make appointments for their patients when they have a spot to fill the next day because they want to fill up their calendar. And uh, they'll tell you to come on in. And uh, they probably just looked at my insurance card and automatically booked me so that I would come in the next day. And uh, they made the mistake of not just booking one of my kids. Now, I did not make the appointment. Somebody made that appointment, but it was not me that made the appointment. So I asked her, I think about a dozen times in this phone call, who made the appointment? That is a very important question to ask in this text. There is an appointment. Who made this appointment? All who are appointed to eternal life believed. Who made that appointment? In our text, you will note that there are people who got saved. 
we see what happens. We know the history. We see it from the earthly perspective, exactly how it played out. But why did it happen that way? It is because God was working out his plans and all who were appointed to eternal life are the ones who also believed. Most Christians that I know don't have the slightest idea about how to understand the electing work of God. It doesn't mean they're not Christians. It doesn't mean they don't love the Lord. They just come to a passage like this and they don't even know what to do with it. In fact, they read this verse and for some reason their mind actually comprehends it backwards from what it actually says. And I know this to be true for sure because I am describing myself for many years here. I used to understand this verse to say that all who believed were appointed to eternal life. In other words, everyone who heard and responded were therefore granted the gift of eternal life. That's how most Christians read this and understand it immediately. But that is the exact opposite thing from what it says. That gets it exactly backwards. Everyone heard the same gospel message, but only some believed. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Everyone who desires to come to him can come to him and be saved. If that is a genuine heartfelt transformation, they will be saved. But who is it that is going to feel that and run to Jesus? Who is it that's actually going to hear with ears to hear? Those who have been given ears to hear. Everyone who is appointed to eternal life believed. Everyone heard this message, but God made an appointment with some of those people that they would be saved. Because of our fallen reason, the electing work of God has a tendency to not only confuse us, but to offend us. I know it did for me. We like to think that we are the captain of our own ship, that we are the master of our fate. We like to think that we have the ultimate say in all matters of importance in our life. We use the term free will. I can do what I want to do. Well, let's gather around the Bible and let's see what it has to say here concerning God's grand plan to save his people from their sin. And for simplicity and brevity this morning, I'm really only going to zoom in on three steps. There's a lot more that we could talk about. If you want more detail, I can talk about this forever. Uh, But for your sake today, I'm going to limit it to three main things. We want to say, does the Bible say that God is sovereign? I believe, yes, it does. Does the Bible say that God always accomplishes his plans? I believe, yes, it does. And thirdly, Does the Bible say that God sovereignly planned to have a specific people? And I believe that the answer is yes, it does. If those things are all true, then we are going to come forth from this saying, God does indeed elect or appoint a particular people to himself. So let's continue on and consider, first of all, that God is sovereign. You know, I really don't think Christians have a problem saying that God is sovereign most of the time. Christians usually just immediately agree with that. God is sovereign. Amen. Um... But then there are limitations that we tend to put on to that. But consider a few of hundreds of verses that speak to God's sovereignty. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, even I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. What about 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which says, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, he raises up. The Lord makes people poor and makes them rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He does so to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Or what about the unforgettable Psalm 115, verse 3? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. 
Just these verses reveal that God is sovereign over birth, over life, over death. It says that he is sovereign over healing and over sickness. He is sovereign over wealth. He is sovereign over status. He is sovereign over power. He is in charge of who it is that becomes king. He is in charge of kings and kingdoms and wars and warriors. He is in charge. And in that picture, he is definitely not just talking about the fact that they are chess pieces on a board. He is speaking to the fact that he controls their will. Some people die because they do things that are stupid. People will die because they will walk off a cliff. Is God in charge of that or are they? They made that decision, but yes, indeed, God was working even in the midst of their foolishness. We see that God is sovereign over what we would call chance, for example. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot falls in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. People in in Uh, Las Vegas and Atlantic City, these people think that those dice are random. They are not random. They are set by the Lord. Those people who win and those people who lose money, all of them are losing something, whether they're winning or losing money. But God is the one at work in concluding exactly what happens in every single roll of the dice and every single slot machine and everything that you consider to be random chance, God is at work in it according to the Bible. Scripture also teaches us that God is sovereign over all things, even the decisions that people make, whether they are good or bad. For example, Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he wills. Take Nebuchadnezzar, for example. If you read Daniel chapter 1, it says that Nebuchadnezzar desired to come to Jerusalem and to conquer it, and he did so. But if you read about Nebuchadnezzar at the very end of 2 Chronicles, it says, the Lord raised up Nebuchadnezzar who came to Jerusalem to destroy it. Did Nebuchadnezzar know that God did that? No, he doesn't even believe in God. Yet God was working in the heart of the king to come and attack Jerusalem so that Daniel and his friends and all of those people would be taken into captivity just as the prophets had foretold. He's working in the midst of evil decisions of people. As for you, you meant evil against me, remember Joseph said. You meant evil against me, he says to his brothers. You set out to pretend like I was dead. You sold me into slavery. You did something very bad. But even though you meant that for evil, God was working in that. He meant it for good. His purposes overshadow yours. His are more substantial, and his plans succeeded even though yours failed. So we see that God is sovereignly working in all things, but there seems to be a disconnect then when it comes to choosing God, choosing his people. Here's one of the strange things that I find. I know this to be true in my life in the past, and I know this to be true of many people that I've spoken to about this particular doctrine. There are many who deny the idea of God electing or choosing who will and will not be saved. But those same people have no problem with the idea that God only chose the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It says, For you, speaking of Israel, are a people holy or set apart to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, I have chosen you. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. I didn't love you, Israel, because you deserved it or earned it or proved yourself to me. I loved you because I chose to love you. I set my affection on you and I covenanted with you. I made a promise to you. Did God have the right to choose Israel and reject the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians? Of course he did. Of course he had the right to do that. He didn't share who he was with all of these other peoples of the earth. They had natural revelation. They could look to the sky and they could see there must be a God for his divine attributes are made clear by creation, but they did not have the direct revelation that Israel alone among all the nations of the earth had. Was God free to choose them? Of course he was free to do that. But then when we get to the New Testament, people tend to have a really big problem saying God chose a people now, that he has chosen a people to be saved. But of course he did. He is sovereign, which means that he has complete and total authority over everything he created. So point number one, is God sovereign? Yes. Yes, he is. Two, God always accomplishes his plans. Is this true? There's never any unfinished business with God he completes everything he starts. In fact, he is incapable of messing up or falling short like we do. He literally calls himself the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Just consider the idea of prophecy. How do you know that these things are going to happen hundreds or thousands of years in the future? How does God know that? Because God knows everything that will ever take place and he has ordained all things that will ever take place. You cannot know the end unless you know the means. If there was one molecule that was off anywhere in that line of thousands of years, then the trajectory of history would be completely destroyed. Not one person ever stepped out of the boundaries of God's ordaining will. He is in charge and you cannot control these things unless you control all of them. The Lord says in Isaiah 46.10 that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Christians will often say that God keeps his promises. Is that true? It can only be true if God does what he says he will do. Another way to say that God keeps his promises is to say he always accomplishes what he sets out to do. He always performs his plans. Third, God sovereignly ordained a people for himself. Is this true or is it not true according to the Bible? Four years ago, right after we planted Redeeming Grace, I went to a pastor's gathering in Manhattan. It was a, a thing mostly for pastors that were in Queens and Brooklyn and Long Island. And I was sitting next to a guy who was a pastor from Long Island, actually not too far from here. He's no longer in New York, but um, at the time he had been here for a few years and I was talking with him and he, he asked me a question. He said, what in the world would cause you to plant a church on Long Island? And my response to him was something like this. I remember this conversation very well. I wrote to a couple of other pastors about this and discussed it with them. I said something to the extent of, you know, I know that the Lord has a people on Long Island and I know that his sheep will hear his voice and will follow him. And I know that all who are appointed to eternal life will believe. And as I started that sentence, he was smiling. And by the end of it, he had this very uh, grim face. And as soon as I finished my sentence, he didn't even let it breathe. He just said, I have to tell you, I am not a Calvinist. And I, I didn't really know what to say. 
I was I was kind of taken aback actually at his uh, he was very forceful, and I said, I mean you realize I'm just quoting the Bible, right? <laughs> I'm 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 just quoting Bible verses here, and um, he didn't agree with my understanding of the scripture, but I don't even think he realized these verses were in the Bible. Just like we saw in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, God sovereignly set a people apart for himself before the world began. And these people would be the ones who were saved by the blood of Jesus. And as our text this morning puts it, they were appointed to eternal life by God himself. Last week, Pastor Mike brought some of these verses to our attention in the We Believe segment of our service, and he did a great job. So I'm not going to cover all of the ground that he did last week, but I would like to just focus in on three verses today, or three passages, and look at them in light of what we see here in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And be reminded that God is good and he is loving and that if it were not for his electing love, nobody would be saved and we would all be in our sin. So for the sake of our time limit this morning, I'm going to uh, limit our examination to these three passages. We'll begin in John 10. And here Jesus is going to explain to the Pharisees why they don't believe in him. He's going to tell them why it is that they are not saved. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The words that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. And then he tells them why. Because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Notice that believing does not make you a sheep. Being a sheep causes you to believe, according to Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So notice what Jesus here is telling them. He is declaring that God has given a specific gift to Jesus. He has given Jesus a gift of a particular flock, a group of people that belong to him. And those people and only those people are the ones who will hear his voice. And those people and only those people are the ones who will then have eternal life. And those people and only those people are the ones who will be saved and never be lost and will never be taken from the grip of the Father. That is all clear according to the logical flow of this text. Can there be any other understanding? If there is, I don't see it. Now consider here John chapter 6, verse 36 through 39. Here again, Jesus is explaining unbelief of the people. He's talking to a large group of people that he has just fed the day before with, uh, he fed like 5,000 men, and so probably roughly 20,000 people. He fed them with just a couple of loaves and fish, and now the people have followed him to the other side of the lake, and they're expecting another physical meal. They are hungry, and they want their bellies filled, and Jesus is going to communicate them, you just want food, you don't want me. And he explains to them why they believe he can do miracles, but don't believe in him for salvation. He explains their unbelief this way, starting in verse 36. He says, but I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Who will come to Jesus? Everyone. Everyone will come that the Father has given. Everyone that the Father has given to the Son will come, and only those that he has given to the Son will come. Verse 38 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And we are not left to speculate what this will is. He tells us, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So there is a group of people that God has given to the son, and the son, his mission is to save them and to not lose a single one. Is he sovereign? Can he choose? Yes. Is he the kind of God that makes plans and purposes? Yes, we see that he does. And is he the kind of God that always accomplishes what he sets forth to do? Yes, he is. Every person that has been appointed by God will be raised up on the last day. In short, they will be saved. And finally, consider the golden chain of redemption found in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. Uh, Mike did a great job speaking of this last week. I'm not going to land here too heavily. But notice what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Who is it that will be conformed into the image of uh, his son? Those who he predestined. And those whom he predestined are the ones that he foreknew or set his affection upon in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those people upon whom God sets his affection, in other words, in our text today, those who received an appointment from God, are the ones who will be saved. And as our text put it this morning, all who are appointed to eternal life will be saved. Allow me to close with a couple of quick application points to help us land with this doctrine in a meaningful way. I know that I moved through this very rapidly this morning, and I know that there are some here who do not agree with the way that I have presented this information. And if that is you, please know that A, I'm not seeking to be argumentative with you. I love you. And I think this doctrine is good and it's helpful. And I think it is, it is important for us to dig down on it. So what I want to encourage you to do, if you disagree with me, don't just shake it off when you leave and just... Like they did, shake the dust off and be like, oh, forget that. No, I want you to dig down onto these passages and say, what do these verses actually mean? What does the word of God actually say? When I really went from disagreeing this to agreeing with this is when I finally sat down with my own Bible and said, I am going to know what God says about this. And I really began to study, and it is then that it became clear to me that yes, indeed, God has set forth his purposes. Yes, he is sovereign, and yes, he accomplishes his will in this way. So I've been where you are. I know the frustration of seeing something in the Bible that doesn't jive with your understanding of who God is. So if that's you, let's talk about it. Let's just talk about it. And I would love to do that with you anytime. Secondly, for those who know this information and who do believe it, It can be very easy to sit in a sermon like this and just be like, yep, here in this one again. Didn't we hear election last week? Didn't uh, Mike read these verses last week? Don't I already know these things? Please don't forget, this is central to the gospel itself, that God loved you and set his affection on you apart from anything that you have ever done. This should be an incredibly humbling doctrine to reveal to you that God didn't choose you because he found you worthy, but because he loved you for the purposes of his own will. Christ died in order to redeem you as a child. You were not saved because of your wisdom or your abilities or wit. Let that humble you and bring you to a deeper place of love and reliance upon the Lord. Finally, it does not ultimately matter if you know all of the right things, doctrinally speaking. It does not ultimately matter if you have every theological I dotted and T crossed in the right place, the, the Jews, they heard this and they rejoiced gladly when they first heard about it, right? But then when it came into contact with their own sin, they immediately rejected it. 
uh, I will share with you that one of the most dangerous people that I have ever met in terms of the church was a man who agreed with everything I said this morning. He believed everything that I have said concerning election and predestination and appointments to eternal life. He would say yes and amen. In fact, if he was sitting in this room, he probably would have verbally said amen, amen, many times. But this man had a sinful heart. I do not believe he was saved. And he caused more disunity and strife within the congregation than I have ever seen from any other person who professed to be a believer. It does not matter if you believe the right things in your mind if you do not trust Christ and repent in your heart. So I want to encourage you to, yes, get your doctrine straight. Yes, land on these things and study them and, and don't move too quickly past them, but ultimately don't let that be your answer of whether or not you are saved. God sees you as you are. I, I didn't put this together until we were singing today, but um, today we sang my favorite hymn. Today we sang the hymn, Great God from Thee. And if I can find it, I'm going to read to you. It's behind me. It's on this stand. I want to read to you what this says and just remind you as we close today what we sang this morning. Consider the words of this hymn that we sang. Great God from thee, there is not concealed. Thou seest my inward frame. In other words, you know me. You know the real me. You know everything about me. You know everything that I have lied about, everything I have hidden, everything that I have tried to cover up. You know those things. I am naked and exposed before you. You know the real me. To thee, I always stand revealed exactly as I am. Since I can hardly therefore bear what in myself I see, in other words, I look at myself, I can't even stand up. I am so disgusted by my own sin. How vile and dark must I appear, most holy God, to thee? If I think I'm bad, what must a holy God perceive in me? But then it turns to the good news. But since my Savior stands between, he mediates between me and the Father, in garments dyed in blood, Tis he instead of me is seen when I approach to God. When I go to the Father, he is seeing his Son on my behalf. So he says, Thus, though I am a sinner, I am safe because he pleads before the throne his life and death on my behalf and calls my sin his own. What wondrous love, what mysteries, don't miss this word, in this appointment shine. Who made this appointment? God did. And in it, it is shining that my breaches of the law are his. And his obedience is mine. So I just want to share with you to close this sermon. If you are in Christ, it's because he set an appointment for you. And it's not the kind of appointment my dentist would set where you don't want to go. It's the kind of appointment that you want to pursue and you will because it is an effectual appointment. And the good news of it is that if you have this appointment, all of your breaches of the law are his. Every sin and his obedience belongs now to you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we love you. May this sermon and the content of this text cause us to love you more deeply. If there is anyone in the room, Lord, who is confused or concerned about the doctrine that has been spoken this morning, I pray that they would come to an understanding of what your word says about election. And Lord, I ask that you would soften them, that they might be able to, to discern what it is that you were saying to them. Lord, it's not my desire for them to agree with me, Lord. I, I, I desire for them to love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to see what your word says clearly. So, Lord, I pray that you would cause each person who is 
confused or, or, or fighting this in their mind to take a deeper look and to take time to explore this on their own. And Lord, I pray for everyone in this room who does know you, that we would rejoice in the good news that you have set your affection on us. We love you and we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray.